Today on the Janice Adams Show, our Black History Month special continues. Glory Days in Concert, the African-American experience in word and song, from the spirituals to the blues, gospel, jazz, and hip-hop. In part one, we retraced African roots, the journey from freedom to enslavement. Now, part two, how we made it over, resistance, rebellion, resurrection, and the making of a president. That's how I made it The year is 1993. Toni Morrison is the first African-American to be awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. She begins her acceptance speech with this parable. Once upon a time, there was an old woman, blind, wise, the daughter of slaves, black, American, and lives alone in a small house outside of town. Her reputation for wisdom is without peer and without question. The honor she is paid and the awe in which she is held reach beyond her neighborhood to places far away, to the city where the intelligence of rural prophets is the source of much amusement. One day the woman is visited by some young people who seem to be bent on disproving her clairvoyance and showing her up for the fraud they believe she is. Their plan is simple. They stand before her, and one of them says, Old woman, I hold in my hand a bird. Tell me whether it is living or dead. She does not answer, and the question is repeated. Is the bird I am holding living or dead? Still she doesn't answer. She is blind and cannot see her visitors, let alone what is in their hands. She does not know their color, gender, or homeland. She only knows their motive. Finally she speaks and her voice is soft but stern. I don't know, she says. I don't know whether the bird you are holding is dead or alive. But what I do know is that it is in your hands. It is in your hands. In Marson's parable is the history of a people. We have been demeaned as slaves, as though the shame of those who would enslave us could take the measure of our lives. We have been segregated as less than, as though the blindness of those who would mock us could share the vision of all we survey. We have known the depths of despair, yet we have lifted ourselves up through the legacies of our past and the promise of our future. O ye sons and daughters of Africa, Especially now, especially during this Black History Month, congratulations. Do you know what a mighty people we are? From a passport issued a century ago on the Caribbean Isle of St. Kitts, I, Major John Alder Burden, administrator in and over the presidency of St. Christopher and Nevis in the colony of the Leeward Islands, etc. Request and require in the name of his majesty all those whom it may concern to allow Myra Helena Carlyle, British subject, traveling to the United States of America to pass freely and to afford her every assistance and protection of which she may stand in need, Given the 23rd day of August, 1917. That fall, risking a world at war, she sailed to America. An identical twin born two months premature in 1891, Myra and her sister Mabel were not expected to live. Tended round the clock, they survived a fortune owing to their status among the Afro-Caribbean elite, their mother, Mary Carty, demurely termed genteel poverty. 
With their father's sudden death in 1899, their mother developed her inherited land and carriage trade, but she could not insulate her family from the ebb of funds and the prevailing winds of change. One by one, her sons and daughters left home in search of opportunity. First, Hermie, the eldest, headed to Alabama as Oakwood College's first foreign student. Hermie then sent for Cyril, the musician, who settled in New York, and sent for Mabel in 1912. Once in America, America, as they called their promised land, tremors from which class had sheltered them at home erupted in violent racist attacks. Mabel went from having maids to being a maid, then a seamstress. It would take her five years to send for Myra. Twice Mabel went to the shipping office, cash in gloved hand, to buy Myra's ticket. Twice fare increases thrust her gold just beyond her grasp. In all, it would take five years for Myra to step into her twin's waiting arms. Five years to save eighty dollars. So begins a new African-American saga, one without which I would not be here to tell the tale, for Myra was my grandmother. But this story isn't mine alone, for the millions who would come by boat, by bus, by plane, crossing forbidden borders on foot, this is the story of coming to America unbound as slaves, but not yet free. Not long ago, sifting family memorabilia, I came upon my grandmother's citizenship book, dated December 5th, 1955. My Lord, what a morning indeed, for at the exact time my grandmother was in federal court gaining citizenship, Rosa Parks was in a Montgomery, Alabama court facing jail for violating laws that violate the words of the very constitution my grandmother is pledged to uphold, a constitution many a flag waver will abuse to promise one woman freedoms in theory, denied both women in fact. For what will happen that day, think of this next chapter of our story as a relay race. In this relay race, Millions are lined up convinced they will win. Others line up too, determined that victory lap will never be won. As the baton is passed runner to runner, year to year, think of the goal line as freedom. It is Christmas, 1949. In civil rights movement lore, Joanne Robinson, a professor at Alabama State, an historically black college, is being passed the baton. She boards a bus, heavy laden with packages. She is not thinking about the added burden placed upon her as a black woman by her countrymen or her place on a segregated bus. The bus driver is and barks a degrading command. Humiliated, she flees the bus. At the new year, she urges others to join her in protest. Her story falls on knowing but weary ears. She stands down, but she never forgets. It is five years later. May 1954, four days after the NAACP Legal Defense Fund's triumphant lap, the Supreme Court desegregates schools. Another lap run, we round a bend. Eighteen months later, along the route, December 1955, Rosa Parks, an African-American seamstress and bus rider, refuses to give up her seat to racism. She is arrested. The baton is now in her hands, but she has a partner. 
Joanne Robinson stays up all night mimeographing, hand-cranking 35,000 flyers for her students to distribute the next morning. As Mrs. Parks goes to court, the Montgomery bus boycott of 1955 is born. To be clear, African Americans are not seeking special treatment. African Americans are seeking an end to the special treatment of slavery and segregation. Having paid the same fare as whites, black patrons want the same service. They want the bus to stop every three blocks, just as it does in white neighborhoods. They do not want to pay at the front, get off, re-enter at the back of the bus, if the driver chooses to wait. That's what the boycott is calling for. That's what America has passed laws to prevent. Carrying the baton of Rosa Parks' decision to keep her now historic seat, Montgomery's runners jump hurdles of job loss, home loss, cancellation of their auto insurance by companies more willing to underwrite oppression. They endure sheriff's beatings, KKK raids, murder. Still, empty buses roam the streets, desperate for former victims, as black men, women, and children leave indelible footprints on history with a 100% effective citywide bus boycott. I went to a meeting the other night, and all the saints of God were getting together to have a testimony meeting, and I was an old amen corner, and my old gray-haired grandmother stood up, and she wanted to give her testimony. And this is the song she had to sing that night. I can hear now, I'm a soldier. I'm a soldier. I'm a soldier. I'm a Is now November 1956 in our relay race. News of a possible Supreme Court-backed desegregation order reaches weary boycotters. Still, these runners refuse to end the boycott. On December 20th, 1956, with the written Supreme Court decree finally in hand, Black Montgomery gathers at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. Their unanimous vote ends the boycott. It has been 385 nights since their leg of the relay race began. 2,555 days since that driver humiliated Joanne Robinson. 337 years since the first Africans walked the plank to slavery and ran the first length of our relay race to freedom. For those who lost their lives and livelihoods demanding respect, and for those who erected the hurdles they would run, the Montgomery bus boycott was and is a monument to commitment and organizing. Its success launched the modern civil rights movement and prodded its 27-year-old strategist, a newly ordained Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., to world renown and a Nobel Peace Prize. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. Sixty years since that boycott, there is still talk of travel bans and how far people of color can go. Whatever route freedom's runners take, we all know the bus is but a vehicle to respect for humanity. Glory Days in Concert, a Black History Month tribute in word and song. <laughs> no cakewalk this. More on the Janice Adams Show after the break.
Such old Africans tell the tale of Mother Lion and her cubs. Sad and dejected, the youngsters cuddle against her back. They ply her with what they have heard other animals say about lions, terrible things heard in the jungle at play. Could what they say be true, the cubs ask, and two yelps just above a purr? What they hear is not the lion life they know from their mother and father. It is not like the stories of majestic beauty, strength, and wisdom they so love to hear. In the time of your great father's father, their mother has told them. In the land of your mother's mother, their father has said of the place of high grass and cool waters that nurtured their ancestors. In this history, in this present, is the greatness they are meant to inherit, to live, to pass on as legacy. But other voices bring messages from afar, strange voices that own a different calling. What is to become of their lives, the cubs wonder. How will they find their way to being the lions their elders have told them they are meant to be? They're fearful, burrowing under their mother. Mother lion listens to her young ones, lapping their ears, soothing their hurt. Then she stands. It is time to move on. Shaking the dust from her belly, she nudges her cubs to their height. Do not listen to what others who do not know you say of you, she roars. With that, Mother Lion and her cubs press on toward their pride. The year is 1919. Black soldiers are home from the war to end all wars that did not. World War I. Men have given their lives and limbs fighting abroad for freedom they cannot enjoy at home. And then the Harlem Hell Fighting 369th parades up New York's Fifth Avenue, stepping to the beat of James Reese Europe's ragtime marching band. The first Allied unit to reach the Rhine, the 369th so distinguished itself that 171 of its officers and men are awarded France's Croix de Guerre. But few back home know of their heroic victory. U.S. Commander General Pershing excludes these black soldiers from the victory parade up the Champs-Élysées, despite the inclusion of black French and British troops that day. The rebuke and humiliation these men suffer that day was only a taste of what was to come at home. How are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? Once home, they would be met by white rioters wielding unfettered brutality. White mob rule of unchecked bestial violence rains upon them. Eye gougings, castrations, tar and feather immolations, cresting in a rampage in cities nationwide, so vile that it would be called the Red Summer of 1919. But for thousands of vets and a proud race, February 17th, 1919 was no time for lament. This was Harlem's day to shine. Up Fifth Avenue come the hell-fighting 369th through Midtown, the 40s, the 50s, and up to 110th Street, where they continue north on Harlem's historic Lenox Avenue. From the rooftops, thousands stood and whooped things up. Mothers and wives, sisters and sweethearts recognized their boys and their men, and they rushed right out through the ranks to embrace them, reports the New York Age. They marched and they marched the final mile, singing and laughing, parading up the avenue toward their pride. How do you t- 
tell the story of a people? How do you counteract misinformation and miseducation? The year is 1926. Dr. Carter G. Woodson, co-founder of the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, known today as ASALA, began the Negro History Week tribute that would become Black History Month. How do you tell the story of a people? Speak the names. How do you tell inconvenient truths in the eye of the storm that is oppression and the blindness of silence? Speak the names. Growing up in Depression-era Henning, Tennessee, the stories Alex Haley's grandmother told, with their painful witness to slavery and Jim Crow terror, were not always welcome. Oh, ma, Alex's mother would say, and his grandmother would snap back, if you don't care who and where you came from, well, I do. Alex did, too. The days of summer would come, other older aunts would visit the Henning homestead, and Alex would sort of scrunch myself down behind the white-painted rocker-holding grandma. Her slow, steady rocking would sound the call to adventure for the boy who, as a man, would retrace his grandmother's stories, his family's oral history, back to Africa. The author of Roots, he would launch the great American genealogical quest, changing the way millions of people the world over viewed their families and themselves. The time would be just about as the dusk was deepening into the night, said Haley, and always they would talk about the same things. The farthest back person they ever talked about was a man they called the African, whom they always said had been brought to this country on a ship to some place that they pronounced Naples. They said he was bought off the ship by a Massa John. This particular African's name was Toby, but they said any time any of the other slaves called him that, he would strenuously rebuff them, declaring that his name was Kinte. He would point at the river that ran near the plantation, actually the Matapani River, and say what sounded like Kambe Bolongo. Those wondrously woven threads would knot themselves into the tapestry of who Alex was and the adventurer, folk historian, and writer he would become. Decoding the strange words would mark his trail from Naples to Annapolis. Tax records would reveal Massa John to be John Waller, a plantation owner. Waller's plantation records dated the arrivals of his slave, cargo, listing Toby, the man who'd always told his family his correct name was Kinte, Kunta Kinte. Camby, the place he was born, was decoded to be Gambia, a country on the western coast of Africa. Ooh, speak the names. The year is 1936, the Great Depression. In the relay race of history, the baton is passed. Joe Lewis steps into the ring. Boxing is at its height. Black folk spirits are at their low. With African Americans experiencing the worst whipping since the days of slavery, Joe Lewis is knocked out by Max Schmeling. Then comes 1937, a title bout, World Heavyweight Boxing Championship. Blacks with radios tune in. Those without are welcomed with a plate and a listen. They sit, squat, kneel, stand, glued to their radios, cheering Lewis on. If he holds out, if they hold on, this could be the night. This could be it. In the ring at Chicago's Comiskey Park, Lewis knocks out James J. Braddock to the count of ten in the eighth. 
Joe Lewis is world champion. Joe Lewis has won the fight. At the news, grandfathers swoop up armloads of children and race into the night. This is one for their grandchildren's grandchildren to know. History, they cry out, their voices forming a triumphant arc across the blocks and alleyways, the boulevards and rivers from Chicago to Detroit, Memphis, New York, Dallas, and every city, every tidewater town in the land. History was made the night Joe Lewis won the fight. This is a moment to surpass all hope, to expand all realms of possibility, to fill the heart and eyes to overflowing with tears of anguish turned to joy. With his hammer and hands of pride, Joe Lewis came through for the folks, just when we needed him most. Defending the title 25 times, he would reign as champion for 12 years. The story of Joe Lewis's victory only improved with age, the age of the storyteller and the number of times the story was told. The stakes in prize fighting were always high in matches between blacks and whites. Before the last black champ, Jack Johnson, won in 1910, a Chicago Tribune sports writer issued a warning. If Johnson gains the victory, it will increase the confidence blacks feel in themselves, and some person's fear cause them to be less respectful of the power of whites. After Johnson's victory, white rioters terrorized blacks nationwide. Johnson was vilified and victimized for his win, his temper, his bravado for loving a white woman in America. Still, as Talladega College's professor William Pickens wrote of Johnson's victory in the Chicago Defender, what Johnson did for blacks was missionary work. With Joe Lewis, religion was in again. The year is 1945. The war in Europe, World War II, has been won. The war at home is just begun. Repeating scenes from the aftermath of World War I, another wave of white terror designed to resubjugate blacks rages. The year is 1947. The battleground moves from the boxing ring to the baseball diamond. Jackie Robinson steps up to the plate, integrating baseball. His daughter tells a poignant and prophetic story of her father at home in the segregated 1950s and 60s. With the children wanting to go ice skating, Robinson would walk onto the frozen pond behind their home to test the water. Broom in hand, he'd slowly inch a root, tapping and sounding his way. The slightest crack would have taken him under. Yet, for the sake of those who followed, for his children and their friends, he risked all, testing the ice, and he couldn't swim. A man of achievement long before he joined the Brooklyn Dodgers. In college, Robinson was UCLA's first four-letter man for baseball, track, football, and basketball. A soldier during World War II, when a bus driver ordered him to the back of the bus, Robinson refused. Arrested by MPs and court-martialed, he stood his ground on conscience and prevailed. Jackie Robinson made a name for himself on and off the field in the Negro Leagues. On the road with the Kansas City Monarchs, he set the policy of asking to use the restrooms before the bus driver bought gas. No access, no fill-up. In a choice between racism and receipts... Most station owners minded their business, selling gas. 
From this core, the pack Robinson made with the devil of racism to integrate baseball is therefore all the more remarkable and painful. If provoked, he must not strike back. That was the deal. As promised, Robinson upheld the bargain for a year. Through it all, he came out swinging, breaking performance records across the field. For long before the Dodgers, Jackie Robinson was a man of achievement. After he was a hero, then a legend. Did you see Jackie Robinson hit that ball? Did he hit it? Yes! And that ain't all he stole home. Yes, yes, Jackie's real gone. That's what the Jackie Robinson story tells us about the man. But what does his story say about America? And what do we tell our children about that? A man was publicly tormented for playing ball with white major leaguers instead of the black Negro leaguers he'd played with before. Not only is he playing the game, he is doing so brilliantly. Some say he even reinvents it. What they don't say is that he played baseball the way Negro leaguers played it, as though his life depended on it, and it did. How many other jobs allowed black men of his time to shine? Negro leaguers learned to give people a good show, a show that said African Americans could play to win, even in the face of lynchings and death threats. From the story of Jackie Robinson, we know this too. Never let others who don't have your best interests at heart define the terms of your success. Playing in the predominantly white major leagues is only important if you accept the notion that the Negro leagues are minor and unimportant. With annual all-star games attended by more than 50,000 fans, there was nothing minor about the Negro Leagues. The same for women's baseball, conveniently forgotten until the film A League of Their Own resurrected this episode in herstory and gave women athletes credit long overdue. Having forgotten... Fifty years after the Women's League, people question support for women's sports as though it's a new thing, especially in the face of UConn's, the University of Connecticut's, women's basketball team's unprecedented win of more than 100 consecutive games. If blacks had continued support for the Negro Leagues, if women continued to attend women's baseball, those games would be alive today. By feeling minor, to someone else's major, blacks and women help the negativity of others more than they help themselves. Surely, integrated baseball is a good thing. Segregated baseball is an unnatural thing. But a sense of self-worth is everything. And then there was Muhammad Ali. I'm the real champion. I told you, I'm the champion of the world. The year is 1967. One day he is boxing's world heavyweight champion, king of the world. The next day he is the lowest of the low. The year before, he'd been asked to comment in the press on his 1A draft status. Ali tossed off the rhyme that would turn his fame to infamy. Keep asking me, no matter how long, on the war in Vietnam, I sing this song. I ain't got no quarrel with the Viet Cong. Then, having lost his bid for conscientious objector status on religious grounds, Ali stood before Houston's local draft board. Refusing army induction could mean five years in prison. As his attorney Hayden Covington commented, Ali's case wasn't like any other. Joe Namath can get off to play football, and actor George Hamilton gets out because he's going with the president's daughter. But you're different, Covington tells Ali. They want to make an example out of you. Ali was not only being made an example, 
he was setting one. Days before induction, he'd unleashed a political storm even more blustery than his conversion to Islam. No, said Ali, I am not going to kill and burn other people simply to help continue the domination of white slave masters over the dark people the world over. This is the day and age when such evil injustice must come to an end. Despite the decision to strip him of his title, the seizure of his passport, and the loss of his source of income, when his name was called in Houston, Ali refused induction. An international symbol of courage, he chose to act in service to his country by sacrificing all for human rights and world peace. Ali's were the days of the civil rights struggle, when half of African America could not vote in our native land, and the other half had little worth voting for. When sheriff's deputies regularly set dogs and fire hoses on blacks protesting an infinite number of human rights violations against them, by their own government. The name of this tune is Mississippi Goddamn. And I mean every word of it. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest and everybody knows about Mississippi Muhammad Ali was not alone in breaking rank with the status quo. Significantly, that very day in Mississippi, April 28, 1967, segregationists would insist blacks did not want to vote, even as the black-led Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party sponsored a practice election. Can't you see it? Can't you feel it? It's all in the air. I can't stand the pressure much longer. Somebody say a prayer. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Despite the intimidation waged against them, despite losing their jobs and their land, the African-American citizens of Sunflower County, Mississippi, voted in record numbers that foretold the triumphant, historic 1968 election. In one record-breaking November day, the black vote, unleashed by the Voting Rights Act, galvanized by the courage of Muhammad Ali, sacrificing all in the cause of freedom, mandated by the assassination of Dr. King, black voters would deliver nine blacks to Congress, eight to the House and one to the Senate, 97 blacks to state legislatures, and 400 to local governments in the former Confederate states. In 2008... That vote would elect Barack Hussein Obama president and, in the tradition of earlier American wars, yield a rage of anti-black attacks, the takedown of affirmative action, the undermining of voter rights, the unfounded claims of voter fraud on the slippery slope of voter suppression and intimidation, and the surge of white gun buying and objections to gun control amidst police abuse of innocence. Ali used his conscience and celebrity to make visible the contradictions of his times. Little wonder he is remembered by the measure of his name, Muhammad Ali, worthy of praise. Everybody searching for a hero. People need someone to look up to. I never found anyone who fulfilled my needs. So I learned to depend on me. I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadows. If I fail, if I succeed, at least I live as I believe. No matter what they take from me, they can't take away. 
Of course, a beleaguered race could not depend upon such rare moments as these for a sense of self. But our heroes and sheroes have given us moments sweeter than sweet nonetheless, moments that define negativity, define possibility, fill our hearts and eyes to overflowing, turn tears of anguish irrepressible with joy, moments that have kept us on the path to our pride. How we got over. We have asked the question with this tribute in word and song. How we got over. We did it step by step, day by day, in the most surprising ways. Glory Days in Concert, a Black History Month tribute in word and song on The Janice Adams Show. Our finale, after the break. Praise the bridge that carries you over for the lives of our African ancestors and their children's children's lives. Thank you to the ancestors for the first boatload brought across the Middle Passage in 1619 and those who lived to see slavery's end in 1865, from the Civil War to civil wrongs and the battles for civil rights. Praise the Ridge, for our Harriet Tubman's Sojourner Trues and Frederick Douglass's, our Nat Turner's, Denmark Vesey's, Gabriel Prosser's, Granny Nannies and Sangbays, for our Sarah's and our Sadie's who stirred the pots and brought things to a boil, for our Toby's and our Tony's, those who heated up the blacksmith's anvils and stoked the fires of freedom, for those whose names we will never know and whose spirits we will never forget. Praise the bridge for our Malcolms, our Martins, and our Medgars, our Septima Clarks, our Ella Bakers, and our Fanny Lou's. Praise the bridge for our elders and our juniors. Praise the bridge. How do you tell the story of a people indeed? We have infused the world with our wonder. When our ongoing story of accomplishment is revealed, we rejoice in the knowledge of all we have done. And the fruits of these vast achievements build better worlds for ourselves and others. Congratulations, O ye sons and daughters of Africa in the Americas. Legacy of Africans enslaved, promise of the future. It is September 24th, 2016. The National Museum of African American History and Culture opens almost 101 years to the day since it was first proposed. Back when the last surviving black Civil War vets, soldiers in the Grand Army of the Republic, were met with the vehement bigotry of their government and peers. In response, they called for a national memorial to African-American achievement. Now, at last, as if it had been waiting for just the right moment to come into being, their museum was finally born of an idea a century old, a history four centuries in the making. Lift Every voice and sing, till earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty. For yet with a steady beat, have not our weary feet come to the place for which our fathers sighed. 
Thank you. President Barack Obama. James Baldwin once wrote, for while the tale of how we suffer and how we are delighted and how we may triumph is never new, it always must be heard. Today, as so many generations have before, we gather on our national mall to tell an essential part of our American story, one that has at times been overlooked. We come not just for today, but for all time. Below us, this building reaches down 70 feet, its roots spreading far wider and deeper than any tree on this mall. And on its lowest level, after you walk past remnants of a slave ship, after you reflect on the immortal declaration that all men are created equal, you can see a block of stone. On top of this stone sits a historical marker, weathered by the ages. And that marker reads, General Andrew Jackson and Henry Clay spoke from this slave block during the year 1830. I want you to think about this. Consider what this artifact tells us about history, about how it's told. On a stone where day after day, for years, men and women were torn from their spouse or their child, shackled and bound and bought and sold and bid like cattle on a stone worn down by the tragedy of over a thousand bare feet. For a long time, the only thing we considered important, the singular thing we once chose to commemorate as history with a plaque were the unmemorable speeches of two powerful men. And so this National Museum helps to tell a richer and fuller story of who we are. That African-American history is not somehow separate from our larger American story. It's not the underside of the American story. It is central to the American story. A great nation doesn't shy from the truth. It strengthens us. It emboldens us. It should fortify us. The story told here doesn't just belong to black Americans. It belongs to all Americans. For the African-American experience has been shaped just as much by Europeans and Asians and Native Americans and Latinos. We have informed each other. We are polygot, a stew. Come here and see the power of your own agency. See how young John Lewis was. These were children who transformed a nation in a blink of an eye. Young people, come here and see your ability to make your mark. Let us now open this museum to the world. Join us in ringing a bell from the First Baptist Church in Virginia, one of the oldest black churches in America, founded under a grove of trees in 1776. And the sound of this bell will be echoed by others in houses of worship and town squares all across this country. An echo of the ringing of bells that signaled emancipation more than a century and a half ago, the sound and the anthem of American freedom.
Glory Days in Concert, a Black History Month tribute in word and song. Our thanks to all the musicians and history makers without whose gifts of spirit this show would not have been possible. The show is of Janice Adams LLC production from the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill in Jeffersonville, New York. For more about this two-part program, links to the music heard, and the full transcript of President Obama's historic speech, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S Adams.com. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Janice Adams.